Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Dignity. How can you have dignity if you're kept in the dark from real history and are only fed myth? You know, Plato had his book about the cave where the powers that be had everyone sitting around a circle with a source of light behind them and specific images projected on the walls. And that's what that's how government sometimes works, that we are supposed to believe the images that are projected that we're supposed to believe projected on the wall. It is not reality. It is what they want us to believe. One of the things about democracy is freedom, and freedom depends on an educated citizenry. You can't really be a citizen in the sense of the word that our founders intended for us. So that's one reason why we on Keeping Democracy Alive talk so much about history that is different from what your teachers told you. There's a lot of history that we talk about here. We do a lot of new nonfiction books because there is so much we can learn from history. And one of the most important uh, exercises that this government, the Trump administration, and so many others before it have done is erase history. It is necessary for them to erase real history so that we don't learn from it, so that we believe myth instead. The most obvious example is Vietnam. I lived through that period. Uh, I was not drafted. I had a college deferment, which was terribly unfair, but I took it. And one would have thought back then that here, well into the 21st century, we would know history. We would understand why Vietnam was an impossible war to win, because you can't impose a government on people that when they don't believe in it. It's not their government, no matter how much force is used. And we've just, uh, there, there's a holiday every spring called May Day, the 1st of May. And that's what we're going to talk about today on this special Keeping Democracy Alive, what it's about, what May Day is, what it isn't. There's a manufactured ignorance that prevents us from knowing about May Day. The rest of the world celebrates it. They know what May Day is all about. But here, 
at the center where May Day was created as a workers' holiday, a celebration of the laboring classes, we are in ignorance. We're kept that way on purpose. And this ignorance has been caused. It's no accident. It's intentional. Instead of May Day being the International Workers' Day, we have Labor Day in September. And then they changed the meaning of May Day. They called it Law Day. Eisenhower, President Eisenhower in 1958 did that. During the height of the Cold War, he said, we'll call May Day Law Day and take away from our connection with other workers around the world because they knew the power of working people standing together. They wanted to take it away, and they did very well. It is celebrated around the world, but not here in America. There is a green story, and there's a red story about May Day. The green story begins first, and that goes back to so-called primitive days, agriculture. It goes back to the sun, because this is springtime. It's the beginning of spring. The earth turned in its relationship to solar energy, so uh, various different tribes would celebrate uh, May Day, of course, with the dancing around the maypole with long ribbons, celebrating fertility, the fertility of the earth, the obvious phallic symbol of the pole uh, and fertility, keeping life going, people dancing around it, celebrating with flowers. That is the real beginning of May Day. Uh, recently, our President Trump proclaimed May Day as not Law Day, but Loyalty Day. He did that on April 30th, 2018. Loyalty Day. Now, what does that tell you? Not to know, not to think, not to be independent, not to question, to do away with any kind of critical thinking, but just to be loyal to the commander-in-chief. That's what he depends on. That is the very antithesis of May Day. So we're going to talk a bit about the real history of May Day, because you might not hear it anywhere else. That's what we do here on Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're going to uh, talk here. This is largely written by Eric Chase of the International Workers of the World, the IWW. They were one of the early labor unions. They included... Uh, all different uh, guilds, different forms of labor. It wasn't just skilled labor. They were open to all working people. And most of the original American labor organizations, of course, excluded people of color. But the IWW did not. They got a lot of repression. Believe me, the international workers of the world, they were called wobblies, got a lot of repression. We're going to talk about some of that that happened, oh, 100 years ago. Uh, when they spoke out against our entry into the First World War, the IWW. Well, most of us living in the United States know very little about International Workers' Day, May Day. For many others, there's an assumption that this is a holiday celebrated in state communist countries like Cuba or the former Soviet Union. Most Americans don't realize that May Day has its origins here in this country and is as American as baseball and apple pie. 
and of course did stem from the pre-Christian holiday of Beltane, a celebration of rebirth and fertility. In the late 19th century, which really isn't that long ago in terms of history, the working class was in constant struggle to gain the eight-hour workday. Prior to that, it was 10, 12, who knows how many hours. Workers had no rights whatsoever, and I mean no rights whatsoever. Zero. They were at effect of the bosses. And there are people certainly these days in 2018 that would like very much for a return to that. They want to do away with all uh, standards of working, health situations, uh, work, uh, food processing, no inspections. Just let the bosses dictate. And that's what they really want us to accept. Working conditions back then were severe. And it was quite common to work 10 to 16 hours a day in unsafe conditions. Death and injury were commonplace at many workplaces and inspired such books as Upton Sinclair's The Jungle and Jack London's The Iron Heel. As early as the 1860s, working people agitated to shorten the workday without uh, a cut in pay but it wasn't until the late 1880s that organized labor was able to garner enough strength to declare the eight-hour workday. This proclamation was without uh, the consent of the employers. Of course, they didn't go along with it, yet demanded, demanded by many people of the very large working class. At this time, socialism was a new and attractive idea to working people, many of whom were drawn to its ideology of working-class control over the production and distribution of all goods and services. Workers had seen firsthand that capitalism benefited only their bosses, trading workers' lives for profit. Of course, that still goes on. Thousands of men, women, and children were dying needlessly every year in the workplace with life expectancy as low as the early 20s in some industries, and little hope but death uh, of rising out of their destitution. People were so destitute, death could be a way out. Socialism, which was new, offered another option. This is in the 1880s. A variety of socialist organizations sprang up throughout the later half of the 19th century, ranging from political parties to choir groups. In fact, Many socialists were elected into governmental office by their constituency. But again, many of these socialists were hamstrung by the political process, which was so evidently controlled by big business and the bipartisan political machine. Yes, there were some socialists who ran for office in cities across the country, elected to Congress. They really were. I know it seems hard to believe, but there were actual socialists elected, and it wasn't such a bad word. Nowadays, the word uh, people, fewer and fewer, when they heard the word socialist, they stopped thinking. That was certainly not the case back then. It was a legitimate political party, a very legitimate political movement. Nobody else was speaking for the working class. Tens of thousands of socialists broke ranks from their parties, rebuffed the entire political process, which was seen as nothing more the protection for the wealthy. They created anarchist groups throughout the country. Now, anarchism is different from anarchy. Anarchy, of course, is like chaos, but anarchism 
is embraced by many these days who call themselves libertarians. Uh, no government, no specific laws, but voluntary associations, anarchism. It's there on the right, less so on the left these days. It was there on the left as well uh, back in those days. And a lot of uh, immigrants ended up uh, going with the ideals of anarchism. They embraced the ideals of anarchism, voluntary associations. Anarchism sought to put an end to all hierarchical structures, including government. It emphasized worker-controlled industry and valued direct action over the bureaucratic political process. It's inaccurate to say that labor unions were taken over by anarchists and socialists, but rather anarchists and socialists made up the labor unions. At its national convention in Chicago, and we're getting to the origins of May Day, trust me on this, at its national convention in Chicago held in 1884, the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions, which later became the American Federation of Labor, the AFL, which only merged with the CIO uh, in the 1930s. Anyway, the AFL, well, the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions, proclaimed that, quote, eight hours shall constitute a legal day's labor from and after May 1st, 1886. Aha, May 1st, 1886. The following year, the Federation of Organized Trade and Labor Unions, backed by many Knights of Labor locals, that was another big union, the Knights of Labor, Knights with a K, uh, reiterated their proclamation stating that it would be supported by strikes and demonstrations. This idea of May Day. At first, most radicals and anarchists regarded this demand as too reformist, failing to strike quote, at the root of, e of the evil, end of quote. There were some radicals. A year before the Haymarket Massacre, Samuel Fielden pointed out in the anarchist newspaper The Alarm that, quote, whether a, man's work, a man works eight hours a day or ten hours a day, he is still a slave. That was some of the feeling back then. It's good to know. Despite the misgivings of many of the anarchists, an estimated quarter million workers in the Chicago area became directly involved in the crusade to implement the eight-hour day, including the Trades and Labor Assembly, the Socialist Labor Party, and the local Knights of Labor. As more and more of the workforce mobilized against the employers, these radicals conceded to fight for the eight-hour day, realizing that, quote, the tide of opinion and the determination of most wage workers was set in this direction. End of quote. Thus, uh, sounded like it was heading toward a confrontation. Well, guess what? You're right. There grew a, sen a, a sense of greater social revolution beyond the mere immediate gains of shortened hours, but a drastic change in the economic structure of capitalism. Imagine that. People thought they had their power. And you know what? We still do have power, folks. Uh, this is history. We're not there anymore, but we still do have power, and the power structure want us to believe we don't have power. They insist that we accept our own powerlessness, and you and I know lots of people who accept that we are powerless, but that's changed since Trump became president. More and more people are realizing, hey, we can't put up with this nonsense. In a proclamation printed just before May 1st, 1886, 
one publisher appealed to working people with this plea. Now remember, back then, men and women worked differently. So, you know, keep that in mind. And the, the uh, brochure uh, said, Working men to arms, war to the palace, peace to the cottage, death to luxurious idleness. The wage system is the only cause of the world's misery. It is supported by the rich classes, and to destroy it, they must either be made to work or die. One pound of dynamite is better than a bushel of ballots. Of course, I disagree with that. Make your demand, the, the brochure goes on to say, make your demand for eight hours with weapons in your hands to meet the capitalistic bloodhounds, police, and militia in the proper manner. Getting intense here. Not surprisingly, the entire city of Chicago is prepared for a mass bloodshed reminiscent of the railroad strike a decade earlier when police and soldiers gunned down hundreds of striking workers. So political violence was not a rarity back then. And, of course, I told you before I have a professor who used to define politics, he's no longer with us, as the economy of violence. Politics is the economy of violence. Think about that. Police don't need to use their violence to keep the peace, keep people knowing that, oh, if they do something wrong, they could have legitimate violence against them. Anyway, uh, there was a lot of concern. And on May 1st, 1886, more than 300,000 workers in 13,000 businesses. Now, this is 300,000 workers. The United States probably didn't even have 100 million people at the time. Uh, yeah, probably like 80 or 90 million people in the entire United States. So more than 300,000 workers in 13,000 businesses from across the United States walked off their jobs in the first May Day celebration in history. In Chicago, the epicenter for the eight-hour day agitators, 40,000 went out on strike with the anarchists in the forefront of the public's eye. With their fiery speeches and revolutionary ideology of direct action, anarchists and anarchism became respected and embraced by the working people and, of course, despised by the capitalists. It's scary, let's face it. The names of many, Albert Parsons, Johann Most, August Spies, and Louis Ling, became household words in Chicago throughout and throughout the country. Parades, bands of tens and thousands of workers and demonstrators in the streets exemplified the workers' strength and unity. Yet didn't become violent, as the newspapers and authorities predicted. More and more workers continued to walk off their jobs until the numbers swelled to about 100,000, yet peace prevailed. It was not until two days later, May 3rd, 1886, that violence did break out at the McCormick Reaper Works between police and strikers. It gets intense. For six months, armed Pinkerton agents, basically private police thugs, and the police harassed and beat locked out steel workers as they picketed. Most of these workers belonged to the anarchist-dominated Metal Workers Union. 
During a speech near the McCormick plant, uh, some 200 demonstrators joined the steelworkers on the picket line. Beatings with police clubs escalated into rock throwing by the strikers, which the police responded to with, you guessed it, gunfire. At least two strikers were killed and an unknown number were wounded. Full of rage, a public meeting was called by some of the anarchists for the following day in Haymarket Square to talk about the police brutality. Due to bad weather and short notice, only about 3,000 of the tens of thousands of people showed up from the day before. This affair included families with children and the mayor of Chicago himself. Later, the mayor would testify that the crowd remained calm and orderly and that the speaker, August Spies, made, quote, no suggestion for immediate use of force or violence toward any person. As the speech wound down, two detectives rushed to the main body of uh, police, reporting that a speaker was using inflammatory language, <gasps> inflammatory language, inciting the police to march on the speaker's wagon. As the police began to disperse the already thinning crowd, a bomb was thrown into the police ranks. Yes, a bomb was thrown into the police ranks. No one knows who threw the bomb Speculations varied from blaming any one of the anarchists to an agent provocateur working for the police. Certainly, <laughs> as we know from many demonstrations throughout history in the 20th century, anti-war demonstrations, agents provocateur are everywhere. I remember one in 1971, related to May Day, actually, where uh, some agent provocateur were telling the demonstrators, throw rocks at the police. Come on, pick up these rocks. Throw them at the police. All of us were smart enough to realize, yeah, right, no way, because then they could really come down on us. So it's possible, we still don't know, that possibly it was a setup, that Agent Provocateur, working for the police, created the bomb. Well, not surprisingly, the police were enraged after the bomb. They fired into the crowd. The exact number of civilians killed or wounded was never determined, but an estimated seven or eight civilians died. Up to 40 were wounded. One officer died immediately. Another seven died in the following weeks. Later evidence indicated that only one of the police deaths could be attributed to the bomb and that all other police fatalities had or could have been due to their own indiscriminate gunfire. Aha! Good guys with guns, crossfire, you know? Good guys with guns make mistakes. Crossfire is not a good thing. It's entirely possible that the police uh, were killed by their own indiscriminate gunfire. Aside from the bomb thrower, who was never identified, it was the police, not the anarchists, not the socialists, who perpetrated the violence. This is important to know. Eight anarchists, Albert Parsons, August Spies, Samuel Fielden, Oscar Nieb, and Michael Schwab, George Engel, Adolf Fischer, and Louis Ling, were arrested and convicted of murder, only th though only three were even present at the, at the Haymarket rally, and those three were in full view of all when the bombing occurred. 
Uh, blind justice, right. The jury in the trial was comprised of local business leaders in a gross mockery of justice similar to the Sacco Vanzetti case 30 years earlier or trials of the American Indian movement of the Black Panther members in the uh, 1970s. The Sacco Vanzetti case, if you don't know, you've probably heard of Sacco Vanzetti. Uh, there was a robbery in uh, Massachusetts uh, where a couple of anarchists, Italian immigrants, Sacco and Vanzetti, were alleged to have been the uh, shooters in the bank robbery. Uh, but pff, there was no evidence to that case. It was just that they were anarchists and recent Italian immigrants, and they were put to death. Well, the entire world, as this trial was going on, watched as these eight organizers were convicted, not for their actions, for which all of them were innocent, but for their political and social beliefs. They were convicted in this Haymarket trial. On November 11, 1887, after many failed appeals, Parsons, Spies, Engel, and Fisher were hung to death. Louis Ling, in his final protest of the state's claim of authority and punishment, took his own life the night before with an explosive device in his mouth. See, politics is the uh, economy of violence. Those remaining organizers, Fielden, Nieb, and Schwab, were pardoned six years later by Governor of Illinois Altged, who publicly lambasted the judge on a travesty of justice. Immediately after the Haymarket Massacre, big business and government conducted what some say was the very first Red Scare in the country. Ah, the manipulation of fear. It works so often. When Roosevelt talked about the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, he knew about the manipulation of fear, fearing the other. Trump is using that now. We fear the other people, the darker-skinned people coming in from Mexico. Oh, those are the people we have to worry about. Never mind real situations, the real uh, economic injustices. They used the fear. And this was the beginning of the very first Red Scare, which certainly benefits a lot of politicians. Spun by the mainstream media, anarchism became synonymous with bomb-throwing, and socialism became un-American. That's very important. You've seen, no doubt, the cartoons of the uh, uh, pointy hat, uh, black uh, coat-wearing bomb thrower with that round bomb with the fuse in it. That's the uh, caricature of the anarchist bomb thrower. It wasn't true, but it sure came in handy. <laughs> when telling the story, when creating the myth. And we're talking about history here and as opposed to the myth. Red Scare is based on myth. Absolutely. Socialism was as American as apple pie and baseball. It largely comes from America. The common image of an anarchist became a bearded Eastern European immigrant with a bomb in one hand and a dagger in the other. In fact, I used to see that in Mad Magazine, in Spy vs. Spy. You know what I'm talking about if you're my age. Today we see tens of thousands of activists embracing the ideals of the Haymarket martyrs and those who established May Day as an International Workers' Day. 
and it's celebrated across the country. May Day is an official holiday in 66 countries and unofficially celebrated in many more, but rarely is it recognized in this country where it all began. Rarely, hardly ever. Over Well over 100 years have passed since that first May Day. In the earlier part of the 20th century, the U.S. government tried to curb the celebration and further wipe it from the public's memory. That's so important. We need to learn that erasure of history is crucial, is crucial. If we know real history, we have power. That's why I'm so glad the uh, people's history of the United States is being taught in more and more schools across the country because it's real history. It's not myth. We can draw many parallels between the events of 1886 and today. We still have locked-out steelworkers struggling for justice. We still have voices of freedom behind bars, as in the cases of Mamoua Abu-Jamal and Leonard Peltier. We still had the ability to mobilize, and we still do have the ability to mobilize tens of thousands of people in the streets of a major city to proclaim, this is what democracy looks like. And you've seen that. This is an old tradition. When we hear, this is what democracy looks like, it's happening across the world. It happened at uh, WTO uh, and other demonstrations, and it has happened so much since the election of Donald Trump. Words stronger than any I could write are engraved at the Haymarket Monument. And they're in big block letters, so even Donald Trump might be able to read them. <sighs> Maybe. And it says, The day will come when our silence will be more powerful than the voices you are throttling today. Truly, history has a lot to teach us about the roots of our radicalism. When we remember that people were shot so we could have the eight-hour day, if we acknowledge that homes with families in them were burned to the ground so that we could have Saturday as part of uh, the weekend, because it was six days back then, when we recall eight-year-old victims of industrial accidents who marched in the streets protesting working conditions and child labor only to be beaten down by the police and the company thugs, we understand that our current condition cannot be taken for granted. People fought for the rights and dignities we enjoy today. There's still a lot more to fight for. It's under threat like it hasn't been in many decades. The sacrifices of so many people cannot be forgotten or will end up fighting for those same gains all over again. This is why we celebrate May Day. And out of May Day came a lot of cultural traditions, and one of them, one of the great songs of America is Which Side Are You On? And this was written by this woman who was speaking at a coal strike, Florence Reese, uh, in the uh, 1990s, and she helped write the song. We're going to hear her version and then uh, a couple other versions as well. So uh, hang with us. Florence Reese, the original, Which Side Are You On? As you well know, but I'm as close as I could be not to be one. My father was a coal miner who was killed in the mines, and my husband is slowly dying with black lung. 
and my husband and me was in the strike in the 30s in bloody Harlan County, and I do mean it is bloody, too. And they tell me, these miners say, we're going to stick it out unless Duke Power signs the contract till hell freezes over. And the man knows they've got nothing to lose but their chains and their union to gain. So I say, hang in there. And I, now this song I composed in the 30s. And you know I'm old, that's 40 years ago, and I can't sing very well. But you, you can ask the scabs and the gun thugs which side they're on, because they're workers too. Come all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Which side are you
Don't scare for the bosses. Don't listen to their lies. Poor folks ain't got a chance unless they organize. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you? May Day, it's a great American tradition, which people nowadays don't really know. They think, oh, it's just celebrated elsewhere. But this is an American tradition. It comes from America. It comes from events that happened in Chicago that they do not want us to know about. Uh, but we're going to know about it anyway. And Bert Cohen here, a special edition of Keeping Democracy Alive uh, we uh, need to know about uh, our actual history. The truth shall make us free. Eight hours working, eight hours resting, eight hours recreation. The stuff we take for granted, May Day. It happened at May Day. We need to know the history of it. And, you know, there are those who would like to uh, control the press. Uh, you know, I got this little podcast here. Maybe there's some people who might prefer that I not be doing this and not be uh, bringing up this history that they don't want people to know. But there is still freedom of the press, which includes this show. There is still freedom. It didn't come out of nothing. It came from people fighting for it, working people fighting for freedom. And so uh, there are those these days, especially in the Trump administration, who want just a plutocracy. The government of, by, and for the super-rich only. Now, I am certainly not a socialist. I'm not any kind of ist. I'm just an American citizen. A liberal, yes, indeed. But it's important that we understand the history and recognize that socialism is part of American history. Yes, American history. And it's not something that we need to push away as something foreign. Oh, no, no. This is, as we've said, as American as apple pie and baseball, and perhaps even as the Red Sox. A lot of repression has come down since May Day, 1886. That's for sure, because uh, the powers that be don't want it there. They want to have full control with no workers' rights whatsoever. It was one 
And it's been fought against ever since then. And 100 years ago, May 1918, the Sedition Act was part of this repression. It was passed by the United States Congress that extended the Espionage Act of 1917 to cover a broad range of offenses, notably speech, and the expression of opinion that cast the government or the war effort, remember the First World War, the so-called Great War, if there was offensive speech that cast the war in a negative light or interfered with the sale of government bonds, you could go to jail. You could go to jail for speaking out against the war. When even the president, Woodrow Wilson, before he got into the war, was very much against us getting into the war. Then he flipped when he got reelected in 1916. But to make speaking against the war uh, something punishable by years in jail was amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, this Sedition Act, which was enacted May 16th, 1918, forbade the use of, quote, now this is in the law, disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language, end of quote. Who the heck is going to define disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the United States government? its flag, or its armed forces that caused others to view the American government or its institutions with contempt. Talk about clamping down on freedom of speech. This was a law, the Sedition Act of 1918. Those convicted under the act generally received sentences of imprisonment for 5 to 20 years. I am not making this stuff up. This is history that... Uh, they don't want us to know. It allowed the Postmaster General of the United States to refuse to deliver mail that met those same standards for punishable speech or opinion. So the Postmaster General could decide, ooh, this is not okay speech. And he, and I'm sure it was a he, uh -huh, uh, could refuse to deliver the mail. That is interrupting with our freedom. It supposedly applied only in times when the United States is in war. The U.S. was indeed in a declared state of war at the time of passage, the Great War. The law was repealed in 1920. In June of 1918, the Socialist Party figure Eugene V. Debs of Indiana was arrested for violating the Sedition Act by undermining the government's conscription efforts. He was sentenced. He was a socialist leader, very popular, Eugene V. Debs, I bet the teachers never taught you about him in school, now did they? He was sentenced to 10 years in prison for urging people, or just for undermining the government's draft efforts. He served his sentence in the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary from April 13, 1919 until December 21, 1921, when President Harding commuted Deb's sentence to time served, uh, effective December 25th, Christmas Day, in March 1919, President Wilson, at the suggestion of Attorney General Thomas Gregory, released or reduced the sentences to some 200 prisoners convicted under the Espionage Act or Sedition Act. He ran for president. Gene Debs ran for president from jail and did extremely well. I'm not sure how many votes he got. I should have known that, but uh, check it out on Google, of course. Um, 
But uh, Eugene V. Debs, very popular guy, uh, sentenced to prison for interfering with conscription into the First World War. Imagine that, speaking out against the war. Tell you the truth, had the U.S. not gotten into that war, it would have ended with a more fair solution than it did because the solution that came guaranteed a Hitler and a Second World War. Had the U.S. stayed the heck out of it, Germany would have been less oppressed after the war and blamed for it. But that's another story for another show. With the act rendered inoperative by the end of hostilities, see, it's not over yet. You think, ah, the act was repealed. No problem. The Sedition Act of 1918. Aha. Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer then waged a public campaign, not unrelated to his own campaign for the Democratic nomination for president in favor of a peacetime version of the Sedition Act. He sent a circular outlining his rationale to newspaper editors in January 1919, citing the dangerous press and radical attempts to create unrest in African-American communities. Ah, see, there's the other. You gotta fear the other. Well, the Palmer Raids came about. Uh, They were conducted by the Department of Justice under the administration of President Woodrow Wilson to capture and arrest suspected radical leftists and deport them from the United States. The Palmer Raids. This is all part of the Red Scare that began with the May Day, initial May Day actions back in the 1880s. The raids and arrests occurred from November 1919 and uh, into into 1920 under the leadership of Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer, the Palmer Raids. The more than 500 foreigners were deported, including a number of prominent leftist leaders, the Department of Labor had authority for deportations and objected to Palmer's methods. The Palmer rage occurred within the larger context of the Red Scare, the term given to fear of and reaction against radicals in the U.S. in the years immediately following the First World War. It was a heck of a period in these currently United States. There were strikes that garnered national attention after the First World War, sort of ended it never really ended but there was a an armistice in november of 1918 but there were strikes race riots in more than 30 cities two sets of bombings in april and june 1919 including one bomb mailed to palmer's home yeah during their first world war there was a nationwide campaign in the united states against the real and imagined divided political loyalties of immigrants and ethnic groups who were feared to have too much loyalty to their nations of origin. Gosh, does this sound familiar? A hundred years have passed, but it's still going on. People are still saying that. Particular targets were the Germans, who were a large part of uh, the Middle West, and still are, with sympathies for their homeland, and the Irish, whose countrymen were in revolt against America's ally in the U.K., There were the uprisings of 1916 uh, by the Irish. In 1915, President Wilson warned against hyphenated Americans. Think about that. Hyphenated Americans like German Americans, Polish Americans, 
African-Americans, hyphenated Americans. President Wilson charged had these people had, quote, poured the poison of disloyalty in the very arteries of our national life. Boy, if uh, Trump could understand those words, he would use those words, that these hyphenated Americans poured the poison of disloyalty into the very arteries of our national life. Talk about trumping up fear. Such creatures of passion, disloyalty, and anarchy, Wilson said, must be crushed out. Of course, the Russian Revolution of 1917 added special force to the fear of labor agitators and partisans of ideologies like anarchism and communism. Yeah, there was a lot of fear of the Russian Revolution, especially in Western Europe. The general strike in Seattle in February 1919 represented a new development in uh, labor unrest that the war had suppressed. And it goes on and on. And this is where it comes from. You know, what we're seeing today is just didn't come out of nowhere. It didn't happen in a vacuum. The fear of the other and the uh, disruption of people's rights to strike and speak out. And uh, we're going to play another version of which side are you on? Maybe a couple more versions. This one by the Dropkick Murphys. It continues.
Ah, uh, yes, a nice little soft version there, the Dropkick Murphys. I don't know if they're Americans or what, but the uh, con- the the uh, ver- you know the uh, culture goes on, and uh, uh, I got to play yet another version of it. This one by Billy Bragg, British guy, Billy Bragg, wonderful political lefty rocker. This government had an idea and parliament made it law Seems like it's illegal to fight for the union anymore And which side are you on boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on boys? Which side are you on? Set off to join the picket lines, but together we cannot fail. We got stopped by police at the county line. They said, Go on, boys, or you'll go into jail. And which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Well, it's hard to explain to a crying child why her daddy won't go back. So the family suffer, but it hurts me more to hear a scab say, Sod you, Jack. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? to follow my conscience and I'll do whatever I can and it'll take much more than a union law to knock the fight out of a working man and which side are you on boys which side are you on which side are you on boys which side are you on history today it all started May Day 1886 and goes on and it's more alive than ever today because the Trump government uh, obviously is in love with Putin and he clearly wants an autocracy where he can call all the shots clamp down on the Department of Justice he said very clearly he wants to do that we've seen this stuff before it is not brand new it doesn't come from nothing they think the people Feel powerless. History has shown, and the May Day uh, history is a prime example, that we are not powerless. There's a lot more of us than there are them. We have to be prepared to take action, to stand up, to fight for our democracy, which is, there ain't much left, folks. We are trying to keep democracy alive, but we can make it happen, and it's important to know our history, and May Day is not just about flowers, not just about that wonderful maypole, swell as it is, you know, it's interesting, so many holidays do have pagan origins, uh, but it's about uh, a history of 
working people standing up and are accepting and appreciating all different points of view, that uh, we don't have to fear any one particular uh, group of people. We welcome their points of view. No one can dominate another. People have rights. We need to stand up for our rights now more than ever. And I'll go out with uh, one uh, little song that's kind of hopeful from a late 60s period, the uh, Jefferson Starship, believe it or not, that uh, hopefully some winds of change are indeed happening. We can make it happen. They made it happen back then. We got to learn from that and keep it going. Thanks for being tuned to Keeping Democracy Alive. This is a group effort, folks. Do your part. 